and welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, positive psychology practitioner, personal trainer, and wellness coach, Darlene Marshall. And hopefully your January has been off to a rockin' and positive good start. Uh, my January has been a little bit stressful so far. A uh, couple of weeks ago, got some less than awesome news. Uh, one of my good friends got a, a pretty poor prognosis, something uh, a bit upsetting. And so, you know, it's always really hard when someone you love uh, isn't doing great and the prognosis is not looking so good. And right on the heels of that, um, I was prepping for the launch of a new business. I was feeling really excited, but you know, that's a lot of work, right? It goes a lot of work into stepping up a new business. I know a number of people that listen to this show are personal trainers, they're wellness coaches. Uh, that often means that we are you know, either self-employed or we're running like a business within a business if we're working at a corporate gym. So I know a lot of people listen to this show know what I say, that when you're running your own business, when you work for yourself, it's a lot of work when you're standing up something new. And what I noticed in these last few weeks is an old habit, something that I did a lot as a child, I did a lot as a teenager and into my early 20s. In my 30s, I stopped. But in the last few weeks, I started grinding my teeth again. And I knew that I was in the danger zone when I would start recording content like last week doing the show. And I just noticed like my whole face would start to hurt and get really tired. Uh, and so I asked a man person, hey, have you noticed? And he's like, yeah, I've tried to, you know, he'll, he'll gently touch my face if I start grinding my teeth in my sleep. Uh, and then a few nights ago, I had a really intense nightmare. I have not been having nightmares for a long time. And all of a sudden, all of these old stress patterns that I grew up as a kid, uh, you know, kind of in an intense situation. And, and I grew up totally taking those habits for granted, thinking that, you know, honestly, I didn't think anything of them because they were so normalized to my life. If you've ever heard the anecdote about, um, you know, an older fish is passing two younger fish and the older fish says to the two younger ones, you know, hey guys, water's nice today. And then the younger fish goes, what is water? right? Like we get so normalized to our environment, to our behaviors, to the things that we take for granted that we don't even notice the most important factors in our lives. And for me, I grew up in a way that I totally took for granted that teeth grinding, that nightmares, that waking up in the middle of the night were all just part of being a person. And it wasn't until I got a bit older and I started working with my therapist at the time, through trauma, through uh, the ways that stress was showing up in my body that I came to realize like, oh, these things are not just a given to the human experience. And so they'd been really reduced in my life. I, I didn't do these behaviors for a long time and now they've crept back in. So today's guest, uh, she's as much for me as she is for you. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to have her here. But when I woke up from that nightmare, I did something I bet many of you do as well, which is I picked up my phone and I looked at the glowing rectangle in the middle of the night. And I already had woken up with that feeling of like, you're wide awake. It might as well be noon. You're so awake. And then of course, looking at my glowing rectangle in the middle of the night just made it worse. So 
you know, shame, shame on me. So hopefully Dr. Tartar is going to have all kinds of things to tell me about all of that in the intro. Um, so our guest today is Dr. Jamie Tartar. Uh, she's got a PhD in behavioral neuroscience uh, from the University of Florida. She did her postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School. She was studying not only sleep, but also the neurological consequences of disrupted sleep, which I think we've all excited to dive a little bit into what that looks like and what her takeaways for that uh, experience were and are. She's a co-creator of the neuroscience program at Nova Southeastern University, where she is also currently the chair of the psychology and neuroscience department. And big ands for uh, our NASM fans out there. She was a, a subject matter expert and contributor to both the certified wellness coaching course and the new mindful drinking course was also like heads up. If you haven't listened to the mindful drinking episode from last week, uh, go do that because Derek's got some gems in that episode. She's also uh, just going to, I always like to give a shout out to service six years in the U.S. Army Reserves. Uh, so thank you, Jamie, for your service. Dr. Jamie Tartar, welcome to Better Than Fine. I wanted you on the show for so long, so I'm very, very glad that you're here. Thanks, Lillian. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here too. As you know, you're one of my very favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. For somebody who I've only you know, met in person for a very brief time, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to pick your brain uh, and share with our listeners a whole lot. Yeah, me too. Especially since you know stress is your area too. So this should be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny just to, to plug, you know, as practitioners so often we think like, oh, I should be immune to this. I know so much about it. Um, especially I think as a positive psychology practitioner, people expect like, oh, I just must be so happy and well all the time. And it's like, well, no, I am subject to all the same forces as any human in an experience. Um, and so I always like to, to lead with like, yes, I suffer as much and struggle as much as anyone. I just have tools that I can use. And so um, it's nice to have someone to bounce the tools off of today. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I think of stress as something that happens in the nervous system. And when I teach about stress, I always start with that component. I'll ask people like, well, what do you think is stress? And of course, they never have an answer because it's just a word we throw around. Um, and that that experience in our nervous system then affects uh, our perception of our reality, how we show up, how we experience ourselves and in the world. Um, and I'm really curious to hear, do you agree with that framing of what stress is? And if you if you do say more, and if you don't, like, how do you think of stress? Oh my gosh, this is, this is the kind of conversation I think we need to have in a bar. We'll get a dry, um, a, a no low slow cocktail from Derek and then we can have it in a, in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it sort of goes back to that James Lang theory of, of stress. Like, do you feel stressed because you have physiological arousal and you, you kind of interpret and certainly with some forms of anxiety, we know that the nervous system can get amped up and, and you know, what are your options there? Oh, oh I, I must be anxious because this is what happens to my to my body. These are the feelings I have when I when I have anxiety. And and certainly somebody could pump me full of a bunch of epinephrine or adrenaline and and I would start to have, you know, racing heart and I maybe I'd start sweating and 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 certainly I, I might feel some anxiety because oh, oh, this is what I do. This is how I feel when I'm anxious and I'm I'm interpreting those feelings. And so yeah, absolutely. And I and I think there's some evidence to suggest for people who have anxiety, you know, perhaps their amygdala is a little bit activated. Um, and, and that's what causes this sort of sort of generalized fear and, and arousal. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I think one of the issues that I think is, is really profound and important for your field 
is this 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 sort of general that's why I said oh, this is very very philosophical <laughs> that my mind body problem is that the issue I think with stress and the issue that we face with mental illness in general is is you can't see it right and sometimes when you can't see see something I have like a friend and that friend's got a broken leg I'm like oh oh god so so sorry for you that, that mm. broken leg how are you doing and then on the flip side we have a friend with depression we're like ah tough yeah just, like, just <laughs> Just go outside, right? Just, right, just, just, just go for a walk. You'll feel better. And, and, and when things happen in the brain like that, we, we have a hard time sort of recognizing it. But as a neuroscientist, for me, certainly at the end of the day, it, it's all physiological. Um, so stress is physiological. And I can have you know the exact same experience that you're having. I could feel a lot of stress from it. You could feel no stress from it. And, and that's okay. Right. All that matters is that it, it was my perception. Right. And once we perceive mm -hmm. the event as stressful, and that perception is a physiological process in the in the brain that we don't necessarily see, but those physiological that network difference between your brain and my brain that makes me perceive the event as stressful makes that makes that event stressful. Right. So at the end of the day, I, yeah, I would agree that all all stress is physiological. Yeah. Well, and even I mean, I hear the parallel you're drawing between if we have a physical. Mm -hmm. challenge, mm -hmm. right? A broken something um, that you are going to react externally, right? Like someone else is going to react to my physical, very visible, you know, I've got my my foot in a cast um, differently than they do to uh, an internal experience. But even that, like you say, the processing and the reaction um, can be very different. And I just think of, I, I don't know if you know anything about David Goggins. I, I was listening to a podcast interviewing David Goggins the other day. So he's top of mind and he once broke his foot and then like just duct taped it and ran on it. Right. So even, even our perception of the stress reaction to a, a, a purely physiological thing, something that's really visible can be so different. Right. Um, so can you speak a little bit even to, to that stress reaction, right? You're talking about the, the, processing that each of us do, like the assessment that we do. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that assessment might be different in different people? Because I think, like you said, some people are going to have big stressor or what other someone else would call a big stressor and be, you know, in positive psychology, you say they're more resilient. Right, right. And have a totally different reaction than somebody who that thing just completely overwhelms them. Right, and I think what this really gets down to is this basic idea of, of individual differences. Um, so what what makes some people more resilient than other people? And so one of the ideas is, you know, how do we manage stress? And and I think we can look at multiple things. Some of it's just biological. Um, there's evidence to suggest that little things like how much DHEA you have in your body relative to cortisol levels, whether you carry, you know, one nucleotide polymorphism on the COMT gene team might make you more <laughs> okay. resilient than others. So, so some of it you, you can really look towards, and, and that's some of the work we do in our lab, we do look at sort of this, you know, um, warrior gene, right? So gene polymorphisms that make people biologically just a little bit able to perform better under stress, right? Genes that control dopamine um, levels when you're when you're under stress, and how much how how your body releases in response to cortisol. So some of it, right, could be biological, but some of it also, and some of the work I imagine you do in resiliency is this basic idea of kind of inoculating people against stress by understanding that we have to be exposed <laughs> to a little bit of stress. And if you've had these experiences in your life, 
you know, small stressors that you've managed well and that you've overcome can in a lot of ways sort of inoculate you to, to stressful experiences that you have. We don't ever want to live a life where there is the absence of stress, right? Or stress, I think, as we call it. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's a big one for a lot of people. Like, what's the right dosage of stress? Um, because again, like I, I, you're, you are, um, being a neuroscientist, I can already hear and how you talk about it, like a neuroscientist, and I don't want to leave our listeners behind at all. But I think what I heard you say was there's biological factors that might be outside of our control, but I heard you use the word inoculate, right? Like we can work within our physiology to build up the skills around stress if we work at that edge of right dosage. Is that the is that an appropriate way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's the the right way to think about it. And and also recognizing that shit, yeah, whatever, some of it's biology. Who cares? Biology Man. <laughs> 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 it's just that, that recognition that for a, a lot of the the way that our body is prepared to handle stress is really the way our body was prepared to handle stress a hundred thousand years ago, right? Humans mm. have been on earth for 300,000 years. For 300,000 years, our stress response system has been doing exactly what it should be doing. It is kept, <laughs> we are alive today because our ancestors could appropriately respond to stress. Mm. This is really what we think of as what would be, we would call evolutionary mismatch, right? Our biology is not in sync with our technology. And so if I was walking along, you know, 10,000 years ago, I would be worried about things like starvation or, oh, maybe this person's giving me the side eye. I should kind of watch their behavior for three weeks. But no, what do I get today? I get, you know, colleagues downstairs, you know, yelling at me. I get bosses emailing me. I have all these daily life hassles that kind of culminate together to create a lot of, a lot of stressful experiences in our life. And, and that's okay because we know that we can manage it. I'm, I'm not going to, luckily, right, I'm fortunate enough that I'm, I'm not going to starve to death, right? I'm, I have a surplus of food. I have a surplus of water. The things that my body is really prepared to deal with aren't the things that are threatening me, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is that the only thing our brain cares about is the perception of a threat, right? And as mm. long as my, my brain perceives my colleague as a perceived threat, it's a real stressor and my body is going to respond to it as if it's a real stressor. So perceived threats, whether they're, whether they're, you know, quote unquote real or not, it, it doesn't matter, right? So your, your mm -hmm. brain's doing exactly what it's evolved to do, which is to respond to the perception of stress. And so, so that's not necessarily, it may not sound like good news, but it is good news. <laughs> well, if I leave, if I was, you know, living, if I dropped me in the woods and I was stuck there for three weeks, there's not a lot that's in my control. But at least in, in the scenario that most of us face, these kind of daily life hassles, a lot of it is more in our control than we think, because the one thing that we can gain control of is our, is our thoughts, right? It's, it's hard mm. and it's challenging, but we are ultimately in control of what we think. Oh, I have, I have like two or three follow-up questions and thoughts. First, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest today is Dr. Jamie Tarter, and we are talking about the relationship between stress and sleep. And Jamie, you just said something that I'm like, my, my brain can't help but latching onto. Um, you said that one of the things we can get control of is our thoughts. And of course, very famously, there is an adage out there of 
you can't control your thinking. Um, and so I, we might be about to rabbit hole, but I think it's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down with a neuro, someone who works in the overlap of neuroscience and psychology, which is, you know, I, I can't necessarily control the thought I'm going to have, but you just said we can get control of our thinking. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. That, yeah. This is super interesting. All the work with the yeah. free, free will. No. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. I, I, there is an, for the listener, there is an episode in the archive that has was shared, uh, I think about six months ago where I had the same debate with Scott Barry Kaufman about free will. So now we can have the debate with you, Jamie, does free will exist? Go. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, this is called a hard question for a reason. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> hard question of neuroscience. Um, sort of this idea of consciousness well certainly we recognize and i 100 agree most of what's happening in our brain is happening below cortical awareness sometimes our brain's going to let us know what it's thinking sometimes it doesn't it doesn't care right because at the end of the day what does your brain have to do your brain's got to keep you alive right your brain doesn't care if you're happy and content <laughs> your brain nope, nope, does not <laughs> keeps you alive and it's mostly you know mostly a good job at that so i think for me at least when i think about this idea of controlling my thoughts it's that part that I that I can control, right? That the me, right? The the moment-to-moment -moment reality that that I'm aware of. And so when I do have, for example, that interaction, so I I mentioned earlier today, I, I felt stressed because I went down to my colleague's office and I and I sensed a lot of aggression and the conversation didn't go mm. the way that I wanted it to go. And I and I felt distressed from that and I felt um, you know upset afterwards. And I realized, oh, I'm, I'm I just can't stop thinking about it. And I was ruminating on it. I was getting myself you know you know worked up. Yep. But then I realized, okay, well, I, I don't want to ruin the rest of my day. <laughs> so, and that's that moment where I think, okay, well, let me like reframe this, right? And that's where mm. we get that control. This, this is generally a nice person. And I, I imagine she was probably having a, a difficult day and this probably wasn't about me, right? I yeah. need to separate myself from, from that, from that interaction. And, and, and that's where doing things like having empathy for the person thinking, well, you know, I, I, I want to reframe this and think, well, I actually feel really bad for that person because I imagine they're usually a very kind person. So they, they absolutely something was going on with them and they were having a bad day. And let me just give them a little bit of empathy and let me think a little bit about how I might help them next time. And really just, just sort of change the conversation in our own minds. And it's, you know, recognizing it's, continuing to think about this isn't gonna isn't gonna help me and then maybe what can I do well let me send them an email and, and say hey I, I I'm wondering if you're feeling okay let just let you know that I'm here for you and and those are the moments and those are the kind of the thoughts that we're in control of are are we going to and it's not always possible right mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. are, are we able to choose that good thought over that bad thought and we know that that choosing the good thought when we can is, is much better for our brain showing gratitude is so healthy for your brain um, but it's, it's hard because we also know at the same time that our brains are hardwired to prefer negative information over positive information. There's that inherent negativity bias. When I think negative thoughts, boom, my brain's like, oh my God, yes, do that again. Yeah. <laughs> Look out for the threats. Yeah, because all, you know, all of our happy ancestors didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, well, the it's, ones that weren't wary didn't make it, right? Right. Like if I, if I was walking down the, if my ancestor was walking down the path and the bush was moving and they thought, oh my God, it's probably like the cutest bunny. A bunny. Great. You know, they, that, but if my ancestor obviously walked down the path and they thought, oh, it's Joe, Joe's going to be back there or it's a tiger. It doesn't matter if it's a tiger or it doesn't matter if it's a bunny, they get to survive. 
Yeah, they're the ones that survived because it wasn't a snake. <laughs> and so we're, we're all kind of working against that. And just that recognition that, oh, no, my brain wants me to do this. My brain wants me to feel threatened by this person. And, and I think those are the thoughts, the recognition, right? The thoughts that I, I'm going to, I am the protector and the keeper of my happiness. And, and I can recognize that this is one interaction. I can still, you know, control the rest of my day. And it's that, you know, that perception. And, and that's really with stress, as you well know, right? It's, it's really that, that perception of control, right? The perception of predictability over your life um, that can play yeah. manage stress. Well, I think, uh, let me see if I can put a bow on this because I think what I hear in this is that maybe you don't have the choice of the thought that pox. You have the choice of what to do with the thought. And when it comes to stress, part of the stress equation is how we are evaluating what's coming up in our lives. And so that, you know, that initial appraisal might be really high reactivity, but that we have this opportunity to reappraise and bring that reactivity down. And so maybe I'm like, oh, it's a snake. And then I could be like, yeah, but there aren't poisonous snakes in upstate New York. And I know that there's a colony of bunnies that lives under the shed. So it's probably a bunny. Um, in my case, it probably is a bunny. Um, or I have a wary person near me who's going to keep me away from the bushes if it's snakes. Um, but a lot of that is happening under the hood. And it's when we become aware of it, right, the mindfulness piece of our stress upregulating, um, that we can then choose to evaluate and maybe reappraise and come around to a different set of conclusions. How'd I do? Was that a nice bow? I think that's, that's a perfect bow. That was, that's exactly, I think we actually don't have to debate. I think we're in complete agreement. And he's a bow. You know what's funny though is um, Scott Barry Coffin and I came to the same conclusion. It's Sam Harris, that's the problem. <laughs> he's the one that's like, it doesn't exist. And I'm like, yeah, but to your point, right? You said you can't always do it, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't always work. But I think one of the really important things I want to drive home for our listeners is that, okay, it might not always work, but the more you practice it, the more it will work. And that's my argument against Sam Harris's position is free will does not exist because you can't control that first thought. I think that you're, it's a slow burn on shaping the curve. Say that again. But he sounds so great when he says everything. He sounds yes, so he smart. he does sound so very soothing and smart. Well, a lot of people that sound, you know, we could, we can, he can be smart and we can still think we're right. Um, but I think it's that like, the more we create the feedback loops of reappraisal, the easier it gets to catch yourself to, to reframe and to move forward. And I'm betting that today, when you had that unfortunate interaction, was not the first time that you did that work in yourself. I'm, I'm, I am, uh, I, I would definitely say that I am a, a recovering ruminator. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> We're always in recovery. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's kind of, kind of how you opened your episode. I, you know, I study the things that I'm inherently curious about because mm. I, I, I'm, you know, highly, highly reactive individual. Like my natural state is tense. And so I, I agree, and, and there's and, and and I agree, and and the scientific community agrees, right? There's a lot of evidence to suggest the fact that we get better at this um, the more mm. we practice it. So there is, you know, these sort of positive feedback loops, and and especially practicing things like mindfulness. It's 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 very difficult at first, uh, but practicing, trying to say, oh, there's that there's that thought. My brain really wants to hold on to this and just sit with it. And, and then practicing, well, let me, let me think about this in a way that I can, you know, redirect this, I can reappraise this in, in ways that I can make this healthy 
healthy for my brain. You and I, I get better at it. You get better at it. Research overwhelmingly shows most people get better at it. Well, and I so appreciate you sharing even this small anecdote and also that, that this is a thing that you have had to work on because I, I, I feel like I'm going to say this a couple of times this episode. I think it's so important as practitioners that we be transparent to anyone who follows our body of work that like we're people too, and we are working through these things too. And that's also part of what brought us to the work in the first place, because I think that it helps people who are earlier in their own process to realize like, no, this is possible. Like where we're at now is possible. And also the expectation that it's not a magic wand. You're not going to do some like magical NLP technique and rewire your brain in one day and then never struggle again. It's a process because that's how the brain and the, the, the neurophysiology and the body adapt. <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. So you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlie Barshall. My guest is Dr. Jamie Tarter, and we are talking about the relationship with stress and sleep. So we've laid this beautiful table about stress. Let's pivot to sleep. What is that relationship between stress and sleep? Um, you know, obviously not all stress is bad. Some stress grows us, but it is not so great. It was messing with my snoozing. <laughs> I love that. Help a girl out. Yeah, I don't think there are any any two things more closely related than than stress and sleep. <laughs> so, Even peanut butter and jelly? Come on, more related than peanut butter and jelly? If you look at hunter gatherer populations and you go, hey guys, which they have, hey guys, what, you know, I'm really curious about your sleep. They're sleeping fine, right? What, what do you guys do? How do you handle insomnia? And then there's this huge problem, right? And the, the problem is that they don't have a word for insomnia. <laughs> Who's this? So like these hunter-gatherer populations, like there's just no ah. that doesn't exist. Right? Really? Because like the the what is it? The Hatsas don't have a word for insomnia. The, the Kalahari Sand Tribe. There's, there's really because if you're living under these conditions, you have other problems going on. But the things that keep us awake at night are issues that we associate with industrialized societies. The Hadza don't have a word for insomnia. I feel like that's my major takeaway from this entire episode is going to be in like uh, unindustrialized indigenous populations don't have a word for this because it is it, 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 it's entirely a phenomenon of industrialization. Yeah, your brain knows how to sleep. I mean, look at <gasps> your brain, your brain. It's a it's a core human process. Your brain is very good at knowing how to sleep. It, we just get away from it <laughs> very easily. Jamie, this is like mind is fully blown right I mean, now. I've never seen like a two-year-old with insomnia, <laughs> a three-year-old. They may not want to go to sleep, but they're sleeping just fine. Oh yeah, they're unless they have a disorder, like, oh, right? Oh my mortgage. Oh my boss. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless they've had some kind of significant trauma, right? Like that's a whole yeah. different situation, right? Um, but sorry, I have now completely derailed us, but it's because this just drives home my whole desire to like live completely off grid out in the Adirondack somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. And and there you go, then I'll never have sleep issues again, maybe. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because it's a hard reset for the sleep system. Say that again? You could sometimes think about like primitive camping even as a hard reset for your, your sort of biological rhythm. Oh, sure. That's definitely my experience. And a lot of times if I've got a client who is unsure of what their natural circadian cycle is, right there, like an artificial night owl, I'll ask them, 
when, you know, have you ever been camping? And of course, most people have at least once. And I say, okay, well, what hours did you keep? What time did you get sleepy? And very often they'll be like, oh yeah, I was in bed at like eight, eight thirty. I couldn't believe it. Be like, yeah, you're not actually a circadian night owl. Like your chronotype is mismatched because you're artificially stimulating yourself too late in the day. Um, so it's interesting to hear that, that that's your like reset model. Yeah, and, it, and it's not just, again, and like you had said, in the interest of transparency, I, I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I, I usually, I'm, I'm very selfish and protective of my sleep and mm. I still didn't get a really good night's sleep last night. And it's frustrating because sometimes for a lot, like we have, a lot of us have very busy lives and we, we lay, we lay in bed at night and what well, we lay, we go to bed at night, but oftentimes we go to bed at night after we've emailed and we, you know, doing all these like talking on the phone, like reading the entire internet, and then we go to bed and we're like, why can't I sleep? And our, my, when my kids were little, I gave them a beautiful sleep routine. You know, we would have dinner and then it's tubby and then pajamas and we just <laughs> have a down routine. And for ourselves, we stress ourselves and we go to bed and then we like, oh my, like I, I again, I lay in bed and I think, oh my gosh, my boss texted me, we need to talk, call me. And she's gonna fire me. That's, it's gotta be. <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do if I can't, if I don't go to work? If I lose, okay, my husband's salary. Oh, but then, oh, what if he gets sick? What if I get sick? I, where's my will? It's 2 a.m. I'm looking for my will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. We all, we all I, even as a sleep researcher, I have those nights. It's, it's, we're alone in bed. It's the first time we sometimes are alone with our own thoughts. It, it can be challenging to shut that off. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up such a good point when you talk about your kids, right? Like we, we want to believe as adults, it works differently, but if we buy this physiological model of stress that, that you and I have laid out here, um, then we have to buy the idea that that nervous system needs a wind down just like it would for a little kid. My mom always describes it as the baby from the bowling alley. Like if you took a baby to a bowling alley and then you tried to lay them down for a nap, do you think that they would sleep? I'm like, no, you don't work any differently. Right. So, um, I think that's interesting to hear that, that even you, even us, um, knowing those things still have those nights where the glowing, the song of the glowing rectangle, the phone calls us. It's so, um, bad. so bad. Yeah. Say more, so say bad. more about what it does to us. And again, we, we always want to get back to this idea that sleep is a, is a core human process. It's, it's just like eating. It's just like mm -hmm. making sure we're getting the right, the right calories. You know, we can make the argument that unlike other systems in our, in our body, we don't need an, we never needed an inherent system to keep us motivated to sleep. Like we, you better have a system in your brain to motivate <laughs> down food, but you never really needed one except in, in, in these industrialized societies that we live in. So now what are we going to do? Just like you said, we, we absolutely need a wind down routine because if you look into the brain and what happens in this sort of so-called sleep switch is you really do need to decrease these these neurotransmitters that we associate with wakefulness and you got to turn on your sleepy time <laughs> neurotransmitters. <laughs> technical term, technical term, sleepy time neurotransmitters. <laughs> got it. So you, you uh, in order to do this, it, it's really about you know calming down the nervous system um, and and if it works for your kids, it's the, it's the same brain. It's going to work even better for you because we're more tired. And and so it, it's this idea of get, give yourself that wind down routine. You know, have dinner, have that. Oh my gosh, a warm bath is great because then you drop your core body temperature, which can really help you go drift off to sleep. 
and the other important part of that is you gotta put down your cell phone. It's not, I'm not even gonna negotiate about this because we know that that light, even if you've got a blue light blocker, blue light at night is terrible for your health, absolutely detrimental. And it's, it's not just sleep. Once you start shining light in your retina, um, these very specialized cells in your retina are gonna pick up on that they love blue light. They love short wavelength light. Give them 480 nanometers and they're like, oh my God, let's party. They love it. Woo, YOLO. <laughs> so in, in response to that light in your phone, they're telling your brain, these very special cells are telling your brain, hey, don't release melatonin. Let's, let's, let's inhibit that melatonin release. And now you're going to get into all kinds of problems from that. Melatonin is, is a, absolutely ancient molecule. It's 3 billion years old. So certainly it does play a role in sleep, but this is also an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory molecule oh. in cancer. So once we start with nighttime melatonin suppression, there's all, all kinds of downstream <laughs> problems that really just, you, you don't have to read the entire internet. There's nothing on your phone that is that important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Put yeah. It Put well, it but... on clock. <laughs> But also the, you know, to in, in defense of those of us who have been known to pick up our phone at 2 a.m. Um, self, um, I, you know, it's it's a widget that has been engineered to capture our attention, right? Like it's it's literally been engineered. There's no better word to have for it, designed to hook us, right? And so to wake up and you have, you know, in the case of the nightmare that I had and the anxious thought that came with it. And just that reach for the phone and, and to dive two, step, two steps deeper into it, for me, it was part of how I coped with the anxiety at the height of the pandemic in New York City mm-hmm. was I would wake up and the first thing I did every day was open up the news and look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. And it became this way of, of negatively coping right? A negative reframe, because what I did was wire, if I feel anxiety in the middle of the night, I look at, at my phone. Um, and I think I say that because I think there's a lot of people that do that, that they wake up, they have the anxious thought. And this, I think, ties back to what we just said about reappraisal, right? The reappraisal. Um, you have the thought, if you have the awareness of the thought and the metacognition, you can respond to it and reframe yourself. For the people who wake up anxious and reach for the phone, what guidance do you know do you have do you have the magic answer and if you don't maybe we can puzzle something out together around catching it reworking it turning the curve right of of our belief that we do have some kind of agency in how we handle that moment um what are your what are your thoughts what are your tools yeah and and i think you you kind of hit the nail on the head and with the idea that our our brain is hardwired to associate things together so it and once you associate that phone with sleeping activity, that there, there is that real association and, and it's a learned behavior and, and it takes time to un- unlearn that behavior. Um, so it would get, probably we'd almost recommend and some people or, or suggest some people may get lower before it gets better. But mm. we, um, and I know this is gonna sound completely bananas. <laughs> Go bananas, this is a good place for bananas. Your, your phone doesn't belong in your bedroom. And, and I, I said what I said. <laughs> I said what I said. There's absolutely no reason to have a phone in a bedroom at night. Um, There's some some evidence that just having the phone in the room is bad for sleep because we are aware of our surroundings and and, and these kinds of environmental stressors, these ambient stressors can reduce our deep sleep. And as we get older, 
we have such a difficult time getting into deep sleep, so you're staying into deep, staying in deep sleep. My bladder wakes me up in ways that it never used to. <laughs> <laughs> it's just part of getting older and on, unfortunately having, you know, these, these kinds of um, like traffic noises, a little bit of light in the room, the phone, and a lot of people use their phone to wake up and that's where we can, you know, I have a, like, I have a special alarm clock that emulates the sunrise. I, mm. I, I don't have to wake up to a heart attack. <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can wake up to, and, and it's a natural way. It's what you're, what you're, those same, those same little cells in your eyes are looking for. They're looking for sunlight in the morning. And then you can get like bird sounds. You can do all kinds of wonderful things to create what we, what we would talk about as a sleep oasis. You know, you, mm. you spend a third of your life in your bedroom and your your bedroom you can have sex otherwise that's weird <laughs> but for the most part for, <laughs> thank you for permission <laughs> for sleep because if, if i said only sleep and you're gonna be like, yeah oh yeah i'm sure people are gonna, oh, yeah, yeah 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 whatever to go have sex on the dining room table because the lady said <laughs> only sleep <laughs> i mean whatever you're into jamie i'm not here to judge you <laughs> so yeah you're 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 well we i think are of the mind spend <laughs> you know tens of thousands of dollars on our cars. We, maybe we spend an hour a day in our car, you spend a third of your life in your bedroom, or you should. Um, so you can spend a little bit making this sort of a, a space for you, an oasis for you, where after that long day, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I can't wait. But the, but the bedroom is not somewhere you go to do work. The bed is not something you do to watch TV. That's where you sleep because of that same associative learning process that we talked about. Because once you start doing other things in bed, your brain goes, oh, this is where we read Reddit. Oh, this is where. No. <laughs> no. So, you know, in, again, in defense of the, in full disclosure, in defense of the listener, like I'm a firm believer in no screens in the bedroom. I'm with you. And um, I, I have a very hard, fast rule about television. Um, I read a study many years ago around, um, <laughs> we're just going to keep talking about sex this episode, Jamie, um, around Couples who have a television in the bedroom tend to be less intimate, less frequently, and have a lower quality of, of self-reported intimacy. And I was like, nope, no TV in the bedroom. Um, but the phone thing has been a big argument in our household because we have a number of elders that we are caregivers for. And the anxiety of them not being able to reach us is higher <laughs> than the negative impact of having the phone in the room. And so it's been this big back and forth whenever we talk about sleep quality in our environment because we have we haven't come up with a good solution yet. So I don't know, listeners, if you have a great solution for this, um, short of getting a landline, because that's not a thing we're going to do. Um, what we have settled on is the do not disturb setting on the phone with a ring through for the numbers of the people who we know would call if, if there was something uh, really catastrophic. Um, but but I think it is a really real world challenge where people think I need it because dot, dot, dot. Right. No, and, and you're absolutely right. There it's oh my gosh, when you look at the numbers, I don't remember how many millions, but I, I looked at it recently that there's the number of that goes into making sure that you stay on your phone. Yes. It's it's really it's a really difficult yes. thing to combat. I mean, for something like that, you know, you could always consider it just depends on the financial situation having an emergency phone that you keep in your room, but like your fun phone yeah. <laughs> outside of your room. Um, it's it's a little bit more of an you know, a pricier yeah. option. Know, that's something that some people do is have the, the emergency phone so yeah well and, and then we get into like you know <laughs> environmental design right can we can we keep the phone away from the bed as a medial step and i'm just i'm pointing this out to the listener so that when you hear something like 
no phones, no screens in the room. And you're like, that is not a thing I can do. I guess good sleep is not an option. So many of these wellness behaviors are incremental and they don't have to be perfect. They just need to be good enough to make progress. And that's true of the anxiety response. That's true of the mindfulness. It's true of the way we respond to our own rumination, right? Perfect's the enemy of good enough. What's good enough to make progress? And I think, Jamie, what we're saying is these, these turning that curve of the self takes time. But anything that we can do to craft the experience of calming before sleep and maintaining that calm during sleep is only going to help. Yeah. A small, I mean, a hunch, I could not agree with you more. I, we're all about small changes and, and small changes are what we want. It, it could be something as simple as, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and dim my lights at night. Boom. That's a win. I, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put like put my phone on silent. That's a win. I'm, I'm going to wake up at night and I'm going to try reading a book that's a win right whatever or audiobook whatever you any any small change you can make i mean even if you you're a person who slept seven hours and you go from seven hours seven hours and 15 minutes oh my gosh that's amazing that's amazing small <laughs> yeah people are, think it's got to be huge right yeah no small changes are, are big wins especially with sleep so so what do you you know if you don't mind sharing how do you handle it when you struggle to sleep because i've got my go-to's but i'd love to hear yours well i i do have a sleep oasis. So I, I have my room <laughs> per, you know, in a way that I don't care. My husband doesn't matter. It's about me. <laughs> so it's, all about, it's always about us. <laughs> and I've got the, the, my weighted blanket and my pillow and the things that make me feel comfy. So I definitely have invested in, in the environment to make sure that it's an environment that I'm comfortable sleeping in. I don't use my bed. Um, I don't for other things. Like I don't, I'm not on my computer in my bed and and I do follow the rule that if I am awake in bed and, and I'm having a difficult time falling asleep, um, I, I get up and I go do something else that I associate my bed with sleep um, as opposed to my bed being something that's associated with being awake. So in, in the sleep field, we definitely don't want to you know be in bed awake for a long time. Um, I make sure that the lights are dim in my house. I definitely have that calming wind down routine. I listen to audiobooks because I, mm. I, like I can't hear somebody talking and, and, you know, think about my own problems. But that's where I think the things that you practice really come in handy, you know, mindfulness, um, doing any kind of progressive muscle relaxation. And so the game at night is, is, is really transitioning from that sympathetic dominance to that rest and digest, cal calming your, your brain down to let it sleep. And the other thing I would say is, is really important with sleep is setting up a sleep routine because your brain really is in many ways a prediction machine and you you the more it can predict that sleep is coming the better able it's going to be able to go to sleep so just having that sort of same routine every night like i have dinner then i then right then i have the shower now i'm going to i'm going to do my progressive muscle relaxation your brain goes oh okay sleep is coming next <laughs> and and it, yeah. these are small things like we said but they can be very powerful especially when you can build them over time yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up progressive muscle relaxation as a tool because, um, you know, I mentioned in the intro the sleep problems I had as a child and to my mother's credit, not knowing anything about meditation or mindfulness or yoga practice or like any of the things that I've learned as an adult, um, she she taught me something intuitively that is essentially progressive muscle relaxation and it started with my toes. And now as an adult, having learned those tools what I've trained myself to do. And it began with, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would tell myself, 
how comfy my bed was, right? Like you talk about making your sleep oasis. And so I would get in this habit of telling myself intentionally how comfortable my sheets are, how warm my, you know, my bed is, how cuddly my cats are, like what, anything I could think of in the moment as a response to the anxiety response I'd get. Cause I've, I've had these very intense nightmares in the past. And then I, once I'd gone through that checklist, I would do a version of a muscle relaxation technique. And I always start with my left pinky toe and then move through my body. And now I've gotten it to the point that if I make it to my head, I get out of bed, but I never make it almost never make it past my knees. And so I, I share that again with the listener for there's so many versions of these tools that you can find. If you find a, if you can't find anything that works for you right now, keep looking because there's lots of ways that these tools can be applied and be responding to stress that's impacting your sleep. Um, Jamie, before we wrap up, I want to talk about the conference. So uh, you, uh, can you talk a little bit about the Society for Neurosports? And that way, anybody who's interested has an opportunity to, to join us in Florida in February. Yeah, especially anybody that wants to hear from the, the brilliant Arlene Marshall, please come. Bah. Bah. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I think there's been a lot of snowstorms recently up in the Northeast. So we are we, we are down. Six inches, baby, snowing right now. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's 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 beautiful down here. So in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Nova Southeastern University, we're going to have our fifth annual conference. It's Society for Sports Neuroscience, and it's where a bunch of like-minded individuals get together and, and we kind of talk about the things that we're talking about today. Sort of human performance, a, a, a mixture of psychology, physical therapy, practitioners. Um, so it's, it's going to be great. You can um, check it out if you want to check out the full conference agenda. It's at um, neurosports.net. Amazing. And I will I will be speaking, but there will be many more interesting people than me speaking. Um, and just to plug for our uh, fitness audience, I know we have a, a pretty diverse audience for the show. Um, it's the overlap of exercise science and and um, neuroscience. And I think that that's a cool overlap to be looking at. And I'm really excited to get to go. And um, thank you for inviting me. And thank you, of course, for coming on the show and for sharing your wisdom with all of us. Um, if anyone's interested in your work, where can we find you? Um, I'm on Instagram as the Society for Sports Neuroscience. By the yeah, <laughs> go follow, come to our conference. It's going to be great. Um, thank you. Thank you so very much, Jamie, for joining us. Thanks, Debbie. Um, and thank you, our dear listener. Of course, I would love to hear your questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, and feelings. If you would like to share some feedback with us about the show, you can do so at info at darlene.coach. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm also darlene.coach and my website is darlene.coach. Um, you can find episode show notes and more ap applied follow-up information at betterthanfind.substack.com. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, I hope that you have already subscribed, but if you haven't, go ahead and do that right now. It, like it, share it, comment, tag me. Of course, I would love to hear from you. Uh, take care and be well. <laughs>